Hi there. It's Wellington, the producer. I'm here talking to you instead of Jane, because Jane is stepping away from the bar. She has to leave to take on a new research opportunity. We are so going to miss her, me most of all. But as you know from this podcast and others, it takes a team to get this to you. And so we're going to continue the podcast, and we're going to continue to bring you the latest science stories. Some of the next episodes we're planning for season four are going to be about asthma and multiple sclerosis. So stay tuned for updates from the team. The best way to do that is to subscribe if you haven't already. That way, you'll be the first to know about the new season. I can't wait. Now, in the meantime, we have some episodes we recorded with Jane before she had to step away. We hope you enjoy them. And as always, thanks for listening. Because of the way these mutations arise in the tumor, for each individual patient, their pattern of mutations is likely to be unique to them, almost like a fingerprint. The connection to full tumor burden, I think, has to be established, but the idea is certainly there. I'm Jane Grogan, and I'm a scientist, specifically an immunologist, so someone who studies how the immune system works. One key part of my job as a scientist is to communicate ideas with other scientists and also with people outside of the field. One of the cool things is this podcast allows me to do both. For the past two seasons, I've had the privilege to speak to some of the brightest minds in research, but I'm not done yet. This season, I'm going back into the bar to see what my colleagues are doing to research some of the most complex diseases and see what they're up to. So grab your favorite drink, get ready to unlock your science brain and join us for Two Scientists Walk Into a Bar. So how do you use your phone to track your health? I use my phone to track heart rate, calorie burn, weight loss, and also number of steps I walked. Oh, um, heart rate, um, weight, sometimes nutrition, sleep. Breathing, steps, and all that good stuff. I have recently been using it a lot just to see what things excite or stress me out. I like those answers, and a lot of those things that were mentioned are biometrics and biomarkers. Biomarkers, you may recall we did a podcast on this earlier, but they're really critical for us in science to understand how disease progresses and how we can treat disease. We thought biomarkers deserved another shot. And here to help unpack what biomarkers mean now and for the future are both a scientist and a medical doctor. I'd like to welcome Mark Lee and David James. Thank you. Fantastic. Thanks, so, for, thanks for having us. It's an absolute pleasure. The title of the show is Beyond Biomarkers. There's so much to unpack here. Mark, what does beyond biomarkers mean? Well, you know, we think of biomarkers of the past as being more unidimensional, right? They were single markers that parsed the population into maybe a small number of segments. What we realize now is that there's more explanatory variables for each individual patient that require a multidimensional approach. And I think the key point is that, you know, it's really the integration of the different layers. But we're already generating biomarker data, right? We, we're taking blood tests in the context of oncology. There's PET imaging for tumor size. There's blood tests. There's MRIs, all kinds of things. Um, why are these not sufficient? It's fundamentally a struggle against heterogeneity, right? And more heterogeneity than we've been able to measure before, right? And our instruments in the past have been more blunt, and so we've not been able to go beyond these kind of subsets of the population 
and really make progress towards individualizing care. Hi, Jane. Hey, Wellington. For a non-scientist, can you explain heterogeneity? It's really just about diversity. Not every tumor will be the same in one patient or across patients. Not everyone's blood samples will be the same. I think what Mark's referring to is that how do we monitor that and track that? If you think about the way tumors are measured in the clinic, you look at the size of the tumor, and, and I think there's some discussion around, does that size represent increased tumor growth or just that you've got really good cells in there that are eating up the tumor? And so it's kind of fairly gross. Um, but when you think about detecting tumor DNA in the blood, right, that's a big jump. What is the process by which we can detect this tumor DNA? And the blood's a pretty complicated mix of stuff it, it, as well. It is. It is. I mean, the, the reality is, is that all of us have some amount of this free-floating nucleic acid, DNA primarily, in the blood. And so white blood cells, which are nucleated cells, right, they have DNA. At some level, they turn over and release their DNA into the blood. Okay? And this has been known for a long time. But in patients with cancer, if you're able to sequence the DNA, that's this free DNA in the blood, sequence it broadly enough, covering enough of the genome, and sequence it deeply enough so that you're looking at as many genomes as you can recover from the blood, what you find is that a very small amount of that DNA, uh, in most cases, um, is actually derived from the tumor. And the way you know that is because it harbors these classical mutations that you also find in the tumor tissue. So this is a really remarkable, um, remarkable things about tumors that we've learned in, in previous podcasts as well. But that they, as they mutate and they have these trunk mutations or driving mutations, that they become very unique to the tumor, which you don't pick up in healthy tissue, even if those cells are dying. Um, but the, the frequency of that DNA is very low. I mean, I imagine this is kind of turning a telescope out to the skies and trying to pick one star from out there and say, that's the one, that's it. Absolutely, but, the, but to your point though, because of the way these mutations arise in the, primer, in the tumor, for each individual patient, their pattern of mutations is likely to be unique to them, almost like a fingerprint. And because we can see that fingerprint at a very low level, albeit, I mean, granted, but we can see it in the blood, is actually a direct measure of the amount of tumor. So, so David, wh when can we measure that relative to what we would normally see in a, in a PET imaging scan, for example? The connection to full tumor burden, I think, has to be established, but the idea uh, is certainly there. I mean, it, it's not, um, I think an important precedent to it is, is what was done with, uh, many years ago, with HIV. Um, so, uh, Essentially, the way that, that, that docs now diagnose the progression of HIV is through um, assays that measure HIV genomes. So viral sequences yeah. that are very right. you know, different from the, from the, the host. Right, mm -hmm. right. So, that, so that's in some ways easier because there's lots of differences with viral genome than there are with, with you know, trying to measure something in the, in the person's you know, actual cells. Um, but the concept's the same, right? And so, and so hopefully, we'll, you know, once the data once we get there with the data, that the connection between the presence of tumor DNA in the blood will link to, you know, important outcomes like overall survival. But uh, we're not we're not there yet. But I think the technologies are there. Wait a minute, Jane. We can really find evidence of tumors in the blood. I know it's really cool. We call this kind of liquid biopsies, right? Being able to take a blood sample and looking at the free DNA that's floating around. 
And when you think about it, as cells turn over or die, they're releasing their DNA. So you can actually detect that in the blood. What's really amazing is now that we know the tumour mutations, we can create these genetic fingerprints of the tumour and then use that to probe blood DNA as well. It could have really remarkable effects on the way we diagnose patients. So Mark, how is the field using this technology to really personalise treatment and care? Well, one of the things David and I have been talking about recently is the use of this technology in patients who are uh, getting curative therapy. You know, like they have early stage cancers and then they're getting surgery, sometimes radiation, maybe they get some systemic therapy afterwards. And what we know in some patients, after they're done with all of that therapy and you were looking the blood, some percentage of those patients turn out to have circulating tumor DNA. And we know that because we know what their original tumor looked like and that fingerprint of mutations is there in the blood. And what we'd like to be able to do is direct new therapies at those, you know, towards those patients to give them another chance at cure. So they have minimal disease still? Well, they, we can't see anything on the scans, right. but it's there in the blood. It's like a needle on the haystack, but we've got the tools to see that needle. And, and how far is the field in linking the presence of that DNA with um, tumor resistance or novel mutations that are arising in the same patients? It depends, I think, on, on the setting. There's conceptual data, some anecdotal data out there showing, um, you know, a pretty clear and, and, you know, direct correlation between the levels of these mutant alleles in the blood and overall outcome in terms of time to relapse. But, you know, big studies that, that really establish the precedent have, are, are probably being run right now, but there's no data like that that's that substantial yet. And of course, it'll be wonderful when we can truly correlate this with tumor burden. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and I think you can imagine how, well, I mean, just in that setting, um, the setting of patients who've been treated for cancer and thought to be cured, where there's nothing on the scan, but it turns out the circulating tumor DNA is actually there. If we could administer therapies and drop that level of CT DNA, circulating tumor DNA, down to nothing, perhaps that's the way we know that those therapies are working. Maybe that's the definition of cure then. Yes, yeah. and, and today we are administering so-called adjuvant therapy. So in patients who've been cured and we give additional chemotherapy, for example, we don't actually know if it's working. Or it's needed. Or if it's even I think needed. that's a really key point too. Like what's needed as well? Like um, knowing this information and combining this with other biomarkers um, will allow the patients to get the actual medicines they need rather than everything that's on offer just in case it's going to work. Like today, you know, we might treat 100 patients with a certain stage of colon cancer. Um, they all had their surgery and we give them all chemotherapy. But to your point, you know, as David points out, not all those patients actually need to have additional therapy. And boy, wouldn't it be great if we were going to give therapy, give it only to those who need it. Yeah. And, I, and I think uh, maybe Mark might disagree with this, but um, I think, you, you know, speaking of the future, you might not, but as of today, it may not be that the CTDNA actually correlates with tumor burden. It, it just may be a different, end, a different endpoint, a different way of measuring whether there's a tumor there. You know, the fact of whether it actually correlates with the overall tumor burden is, is interesting. What really matters is how well 
it drives clinical decision making and ultimately whether it correlates better with overall survival. Well, that begs the question then, what else do you need to measure to make that endpoint more solid? And are there other biomarkers beyond ctDNA that are really important? Yeah, no, absolutely. By the way, David, you know I always agree with you. <laughs> I don't disagree with you, come on. Yeah, you're very astute. Yeah, but I mean, but Jane, I mean, to your, to your point, I mean, I think there's an opportunity to measure other, um, other features of the patient, especially over time. You know, one thing we're very interested in is, uh, is imaging, right? It's taking full advantage of the data that's present in these scans. And while we have traditional ways of looking at scans uh, and quantifying the amount of tumor and the amount of change across time, um, we're realizing that machine-based approaches, you know, where we're taking advantage of every pixel and every one of those images, um, might actually be more quantitative and more revealing. So going actually back to original data rather than necessarily creating new information. Correct. And, and re like reproducibility too, right? I, mean, I think that's one of the, you know, definitely one of the, the great advantages of automation is that you can do things you know, you're not relying on, you know, the same pathologists on the same day reading the same scan three times the same way, right? You can do, have a computer do it, it takes a split second, and they're doing it exactly the same way every time. I think there'd be huge advantages to that, um, even if you're not even, not even scanning people, if you're just scanning slides, um, looking at someone's pupil, you know, it, it's just, you can measure things the same way, yeah. which is really hard to do in science. But, um, you know, my experience of biomarkers is a little simpler than that. <laughs> you get a biopsy and you slice the tumour and there's only so much tissue and so much you can do with that. Yes. Um, and things often get reduced down to one or two um, uh, analytes um, or ten analytes. But to get to this kind of granularity, we need to go broader with both the tumour sample the imaging as you were talking about, Mark, and then and then the ctDNA as you were talking about, David, and then other things as well. Um, so what do we do with the tumours and the biopsies and how can we be better at using that material for biomarkers? I think, I think one of the, the hard parts of, you know, what, what we do is that you don't know necessarily what's important, you know, and so <laughs> you don't, right? So you have to test 50 things and 25 of them look good and then you retest them and then only five look good. So it's just a, this iterative process of trying to figure out, um, you know, what's important within a particular, in the context of a particular drug. Um, sometimes it's more obvious than others, like if you have a very targeted inhibitor, you kind of need, know that you need to look at the target. But, you know, it's probably the simplest case. When you have more complex systemic therapies like immunotherapy, you don't necessarily know that. So, you know, one of the big changes from, I think, a few years ago is that everything we do now is multiplexed, meaning we don't look at one thing at a time. We look, you know, you do whole, whole genome sequencing, the whole, you know, whole transcriptome analysis where it used to be we used to do, you know, one or five or 90 PCRs. Um, now we can look at everything together, right? And so that, that's dramatically improved our efficiency with samples. Um, it arguably has complicated the situation because now there's so much to look at. You don't know, unless you have large numbers of patients, what's real and what's not. So in some ways it makes discovery 
more difficult, but it, it certainly broadens the landscape of things that are potentially possible. It's certainly the challenge um, and the appeal of the reverse translation as yeah. well. Yeah. So if we want to look at what's underneath the iceberg and how big it is, um, what kind of data is the field starting to collect? Because it could go on ad infinitum, right? And, and, and what makes sense and what should we be collecting at risk so that years from now we can look back um, the same way we're looking back at pet imaging, for example, and reassessing that? Because one starts to think about there's tumour sampling, there's blood sampling, there's saliva sampling, there's you know, bodily fluid sampling, um, and the list goes on. Yeah. Well, we have to place some bets, right? And um, certainly the sample acquisition is something that you can't go backwards in time to collect. So sample banking, I think, is, is going to remain important in these large studies, and that's what people are doing, right? But then we do have to commit to certain molecular profiling platforms, you know, data analysis platforms, uh, imaging. Then we have to figure out what we're going to do with those samples. And at this point, you know, we are looking at germline, you know, whole genome sequencing on the germline. We're looking at whole exome sequencing on the tumor. And RNA-seq, we're looking at ctDNA. I mean, these are the leading um, platforms. They're the most mature platforms. And I think we believe there is true information content in each one of those that's complementary. Jane, what is sample banking? Oh, it's really just being able to take samples from patients on clinical trials, maybe blood, maybe their tumor, and um, collect it and either analyze it in real time or bank it so that we can ask questions of it later. How do we collate these data sets, right? We've got the imaging, the whole genome sequencing. Um, we've even got T-cell receptor sequencing that, that's coming online as well. Um, and there are a number of different data sets across the world, whether it's in consortiums or held within academic or, you know, commercial organizations. Yeah, so I mean, I think there just has to be a, a, an acknowledgement that, that, you know, not everything's going to be important, um, but there has to be, you have to put the investment out there or invest now to sort of collect the information while you're getting the samples. Um, over time, the value will accrue, I think, you know, so for example, the Cancer Genome Atlas, which was a project sponsored by NIH um, uh, a decade ago or more, um, where the idea was we were going to sequence everybody's or a bunch of tumor types. Um, and I think there was an expectation um, that by doing that, everything will, will solve all the, the, the cancers that are out there. And just it just doesn't work that way, yeah. right? We, it's, it's like even sequencing the human genome would be done, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'd have solved all diseases. We haven't solved it. No, <laughs> not at all. No. How do genes really work, right? And what regulates them? We're still working that out. It is complicated, yeah. but I think you have to, you just have to take that risk. It's, you know, like, like a lot of what we do. It's just there, there's a risk of the unknown. Um, doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the other point, the other thing that we've learned over time is that the scale of the experiments matters so much, right? I mean, even something as large as the Cancer Genome Atlas, uh, when you divide it across 30, you know, it's more than 10,000 patients, but divided across 30 tumor types, for each tumor type, you actually didn't have that many patients, right? And now we know that each of those tumor types is actually not one disease, right. but probably dozens of diseases, and so then the numbers get really small. Which becomes a statistical problem or exactly. a statistical 
exactly. problem in the context of heterogeneous biology. Exactly. Right? It's very likely that we would have needed a cancer, you know, the cancer genome atlas should have been 10 times bigger, you know, 100 times bigger for us to really make these analyses meaningful in the subsets of disease we now know exist. But the reality is, as we collect these larger data sets, we still need to analyze and interpret them along the way when they're still small. And this is one of the challenges for biomarkers and diagnostic and treatment right now is that in a, you know, in a quote unquote perfect world, we'd, world, we'd have all that data already. And we don't, we still need to generate it. Yeah. yeah. This is, this is the real challenge, right? I mean, we talk about uh, this, you know, the, the, the need for meaningful data at scale. Uh, that you, I, you're throw that in I have, to, I, I, I couldn't resist. I couldn't resist. No, but I can know. give you that from the lab, right? We can grow cells in a dish, or you know, look at various preclinical yes. models. But when it gets to Humans, patients, it's very different. But it's, you know, but he, but this is the data that we need uh, to really draw firm conclusions about associations between certain profiles and w what ought to happen in terms of therapy. Right? I mean, you're not going to get that from any other place other than from human, uh, from, from populations. So, Mike, we've been talking about oncology, but this is applicable to all kinds of diseases. How are you thinking about, or how is the field thinking about this in neurobiological diseases or inflammatory diseases? So, it's absolutely uh, parallel, right? I mean, and there's, there's definitely analogs for what we've, what we've done in oncology, and admittedly, oncology has been ahead of the pack in terms of this kind of biomarker-driven personalization of care. You know, maybe my colleagues outside of oncology, you know, would uh, would would take umbrage with that. But, but I mean, the reality is is that uh, that stratifying patients into different subgroups is something which uh, we're pursuing with very similar approaches, looking at the genomics, looking at imaging. You know, uh, if you think about neurologic disease, you know, can MRIs um, you know, of the brain be used to look at a, an anatomic approach to segregating disease, right? Could serial MRIs show us a, a change in the, you know, the, the, the appearance of the lesions? Could that stratify patients? And would there be therapeutic consequences? Especially as the number of therapies grows in a particular indication, could we say, hey, therapy A works better in this strata of patients determined by imaging? And would uh, therapy B work better in this other strata? So we're just beginning to learn how to do that. Uh, but that's very much analogous to what happened in oncology, you know, with the advent of genomics. Yeah, I think there's re more recent examples of this, certainly in, in eye disease, right? Yeah, absolutely. There's some beautiful work by a number of groups now where, um, where machine learning approaches uh, to look at retinal images, which ophthalmologists have been acquiring for years, um, that it turns out you can do, you can learn more than whether someone has disease or not. You can actually learn other things about that patient, including predicting their disease course, which most ophthalmologists would not have guessed before. Um, some very nice work showing that, uh, that a patient's gender, their age, their blood pressure, uh, hemoglobin A1C, you know, these are cardiovascular risk factors, are evident in the retinal image if you have enough data to train those, those, those models. And what we're learning now is in a patient with retinal disease, like diabetic retinopathy, um, can we predict 
Um, you know, which patients in a population are likely to have vision loss over time and which ones are actually going to be unaffected. I mean, knowing that would have big implications on when to intervene. And, uh, and we're, we're, we're finding that uh, that information is hidden in those retinal images and now we can uncover them with data at scale. Which is remarkable that there's such a crossover implication to, you know, cardiovascular diseases or other implications. Um, machine learning versus artificial intelligence, right? Are we speaking the same language here or does artificial intelligence um, portend more values, other interpretations than just using machines to evaluate data? Well, I think we think of these as being um, related concepts, right? And there's certainly the opportunity to automate features in data that humans would observe, right? Like you think about pathology, we can, we can develop algorithms to recognize cancer cells and lymphocytes and stromal cells, etc. And then there's this category of deep learning where the machines are not told to recognize human features, but to look for features on their own, to learn the features on the basis of uh, ground truth, which in, in the case of patient data is outcome. Is there something they see in this collection of ones and zeros, these pixels in an image, that put together portends a certain outcome for the patient? Or predicts it. Or predicts it. And that then, um, I mean, it's a bit mysterious how that happens, right? We're not always able to figure out exactly how these models are making those predictions. But there's a lot of very exciting work to say, can we back out from those models the features that are most important? And could we learn new features, new elements of biology that wouldn't have been evident from the feature-based approach Right, where we're telling the machines, here are the things we know, and assemble those things into a story about, you know, these are poor prognosis patients and those are good prognosis patients. In this case, we're saying, we're telling you up front, here are the good prognosis and bad prognosis patients. Tell us what's hidden in these images that would explain that. And I think they're complementary approaches. Uh, I'm very excited. So, so David, um, when you think about using these kind of data sets and fitting that information into this machine learning and algorithm predictions, um, how, how do you actually practically look and treat data? You know, I know that with the smaller data sets, you try and come up with some kind of um, rules about how the disease is progressing or who's responding and then come up with this, an algorithm or a set of assumptions that then what, go, one has to go and test in another patient cohort or yeah. well, how do you approach this? Yeah, so, so you know, the way machine learning works is that you have, um, let's say, clinical characteristics. You have a hundred things um, and you know um, sort of what you're looking for. And so you test which of those hundred things, you know, are there 10 that kind of explain most of the behavior? Uh, and then you build that model based on, um, you know, typically a retrospective analysis of a subset of the trial. So basically, you have 100 patients, you, you build a model in 70 of them, and then test it in the remaining 30. Ideally, you do that with, you know, much bigger data sets um, with lots of both patients. One of the one of the challenges with machine learning is that you will often you often overfit to, meaning that 
you find characteristics within your, your training set that explain what's happening in the training set, but then when you try to apply it into a new data set, it doesn't really work that well. Um, I think the, the scientific literature is, is littered with um, examples of, of that where, you know, gene signatures or whatever just don't reproduce um, outside of, of a particular um, uh, lab, right? So if you test... So it's an artifact of the data or just some other factor that normalizes the data in a slightly different way? Yeah, it's, it's, it's more just, an, it's just a characteristic of that particular experiment, right, that, that gets then carried through. And you don't always know, like, for example, one of the problems with, um, you know, this meaningful data at scale is that you really only have the things that you collect, right? You collect, you know, blood levels of albumin or whatever it is. You, you do that because we know that they're prognostic, so it doesn't, doesn't, it's not surprising that they would come through, you know, as one of the variables that may be important for prognosis in a particular trial. What we don't know is what else are we missing. And so one of the advantages of doing these imaging things is where it's everything that's in that image. You don't necessarily have to know what it is. So ma machine learning in some ways is a little bit more directed, whereas, you know, the AI approaches can be kind of, I guess, quote unquote, unbiased. Yeah. They must, they, they certainly do have biases, but they may be different ones. And so you kind of do both. Jane, is machine learning or AI affecting things in your world? It's affecting all of us. It's a bit like we've talked about statistics. <laughs> you know, growing up as a biologist, I never thought I'd have to, you know, reintroduce mathematics and statistics into my science beyond some really basic, basic um, equations. But it's important for everything. And machine learning and artificial intelligence is here to stay. And I think young scientists out there need to consider that as their training. So um, I'd like to just turn personal for a moment. You're a trained medical doctor. Yeah. How has that impacted the way you look at patients and the way you think about data collection? Well, I think we're realizing how, you know, every, I mean, there's data being generated every single day in clinical care. And, you know, we, we need to make that data work, uh, work for the benefit of the next patient, or actually even for that patient, right? Um, and we don't currently have a system that enables that. Most of the data we generate in clinical care is not contributing to our knowledge base in the way that it should. And uh, so now when I think about, you know, what's possible when, when someday all of this data that's being generated in routine clinical care is helping advance our knowledge in real time so that the next patient's benefiting from the collective of all this other data, think about what could be possible. Um, how much better we're going to do in, in really understanding for that individual patient what's the best course of action. Um, I, I think that's an incredibly exciting future. And David, how did you end up focusing on biomarker and large data analysis in a clinical setting? Um, well, I guess it, it, it sort of started with, you know, gra in grad school where I was sort of trying to figure out what I wanted to do and um, it sort of led to cancer biology because that's where the models were. Uh, what always I always remember from grad school is actually looking down a microscope and, you know, looking at these cells just do crazy things. And, you know, how does that that cell that does crazy things come from a, a cell and a person that's doing exactly what it should be doing? So how can you understand the genetic yeah. process? Yeah. And, you know. yeah, so that was really sort of the, the early fascination with it. And that kind of led to 
okay, how do you detect these things, um, you know, and the genetics and the, the epigenetics, um, which was really what I did in, in, in grad school, and that sort of morphed, actually was a good segue into what I do here, um, which is really related to understanding the genetics and, and the dynamics of what happens with tumors, you know, when they're getting treated. Um, the technology is sort of where the, you know, data at scale comes from, right? So, you know, even when I started, I mean, we were doing things at a very sort of one gene, one drug approach, right? Um, now it's just everything. Yeah. And, and for our younger listeners out there, I mean, we've talked about machine learning and artificial intelligence and collecting data, um, you know, and this is going to include wearables and monitors and all kinds of things. What does the field look like 10 years from now? Mark. Yeah. Well, I think, I think, you know, scientists are going to be data scientists, right? I mean, they have to be well-versed in data science and be able to work with data of many different types. Um, that what's going to be explanatory about biology, working backwards from the human, the ultimate experimental organism, mm -hmm. um, is, uh, is going to be a a multi-dimensional picture. And I think we're, we're gonna want our scientists to be real experts in, in looking at all of these different data types. I think we're hearing that they're gonna to have to be computer programmers and biostatisticians and large data. Uh, it's kind of, kind of ironic in a way. So I remember um, you know, one of the reasons I got interested in going to grad school was that I, I read an interview, um, I think in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, um, about the founder of Netscape who said that um, they asked him a similar question, saying, you know, where, where, if you were, had a, a, your chance over again, you know, or, you know, where, where do you think this is going? He said, for sure I'd be getting into biology. Um, I listened to that, unfortunately. If I'd gone, been a computer scientist, I'd be retired by now. But um, it seems like, you know, it's come full circle, and biologists are now saying, you know, make sure you know how to code. <laughs> yeah, no, it's funny. It was, I remember when I was a grad student, uh, my, my PhD advisor, I remember asking him, um, you know, I was doing some yeast experiment, and I was like, you know, maybe we should get a statistician to look at this result. And I remember distinctly what he said. He said, if you need a statistician, it isn't real. Yeah. <laughs> That's what he said. <laughs> and now I, I think, man, I, w I should not have listened to him. I, I should have learned statistics. I don't know. I struggle. like, what does the p-value really mean? Right? <laughs> no, but it's just become so, I mean, like uh, the ability to work with data and work with data at, you know, at levels that humans can't do manually, right? I mean, you've got to program. This is going to be essential for the future. So we've been talking about using current technologies, but beyond biomarkers suggests more than that. Absolutely. And so, you know, I think it's still the case that there's more information to be had from traditional samples like the tumor tissue and the blood, but, it, but there's opportunities to go way beyond that. Okay, so what kind of opportunities are they? Yeah, so we talk about, um, you know, using, for example, the smartphone, right, and, and the way people interact with their smartphone. There's reason to believe that the tenor of your voice can indicate something about your neurologic state. The way that you scroll up and down on a web page, or how often you use the delete key. It's probably not surprising that, you know, when you're sleepy or you've had too much to drink, that you probably use the delete key a lot more because your typing is so much less accurate. So we're measuring hangover response as well. 
Well, that's part of uh, <laughs> that's part of your uh, your your clinical picture, right? So, yeah, I think it's absolutely true. I think there are a lot of uh, you know you're walking around with a a, a pretty pretty uh, incredible um, device that that tracks lots of things about how you walk, where you walk, how quickly you go up the stairs. All of these things could be used in some way, um, you know, to measure health. You know, there could be very very I mean, very informative other ways to use those things. Um, I guess those your, your glasses, if they become, you know, uh, uh, have devices in them, they could you could tell you know how long it takes your eyes to focus. That mm -hmm. could be, you know, pretty important uh, for various disease settings. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, there's diet and metabolism and all kinds oh of goodness. other factors that get laid into this as well. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, so there's like, there's like when we talk about the the microbiome as a supplement, right? The microbiome is like all the bacteria that live in your gut. More cells than us, yeah. Yeah, or live on your skin. But there's so many other ohms, you know, that we haven't even tapped into, right? I mean, you're referring to something like the expososome, right? You know, like the kind of things that are around in your environment. So there's, there's still so many other uh, elements of data that we could capture about a patient that tells us you know, why they're, you know, they're going to respond to a drug or not respond to a drug uh, in a particular way. So you think we can simply be agnostic to the data we collect, collect it all and let the data analysis direct us? I think we have to understand the attributes of a particular data type. Like what's noise, what's signal. I mean, we still have to get to that point before we routinely capture it on patients. Because, you know, as they say, garbage in, garbage out, right? If you collect the kind of data that's just impossibly noisy, it wasn't worth it, yeah. right? Whereas something that you understand the properties of, you know, where you know how reliable it is and when to pay attention and when to ignore it, that's gonna be good data to capture. Yeah, and I, you know, I think, you don't know what's important until you until you do, right? Right, everything can be important. It really depends on the lens. And I feel like with the two of you, we're in good hands. I wish you both the best and good luck in your journeys and looking look forward to hearing and experiencing some of the outcomes. So thank you, Mark, and thank you, David. Thank you thank very you. much. What I love about the field of biomarkers, even beyond biomarkers, is that it is still unfolding as we collect more data. And the more data we collect, the more questions we can ask of it. And as we do that, we're going to understand more about disease, how to treat disease, how to identify patients, and really truly get to personalised healthcare. So that's a wrap for today. Thanks for listening. Keep telling your science fans about us. Find us on social media, download the podcast from your favourite podcast app, and feel free to rate us on iTunes. And now, until next time for me, it's back to the lab.